from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Learn from the almond leaf which flames as it falls The ground is burning the earth is burning flamboyance is all that's jeet thail poet novelist reciting the work of one of india's most loved poets yunus disuza yunus's poems not only feature in the penguin book of indian poets which came out recently but her image also graces the cover of the book 20 years in the making this is no ordinary anthology of indian poetry Thail has edited and put together an exhaustive selection of works of 94 Indian poets, the oldest born in 1924 and the youngest in 2001. It also includes several lost, uncollected or out-of-print poems, essays that place entire bodies of work into their precise cultural contexts, and a collection of classic black and white portraits by Madhuka Parath. In this interview, Thail talks about the nihilism in which Modern Indian poetry found its groove how Instagram has given expression to new age poetry and the new Indian poets to watch out for Jeet you've given us some of the best anthologies on Indian poetry what has it been like chronicling the poetry scene You know I never set out to be a chronicler of the Indian poetry scene in quotes because as you and i know there really is hasn't been much of a scene to speak of for all these years it was just uh, solitary men and women sitting in beaten up rooms managing to squeeze out a few lines every once in a while when their human uh, problems seemed somewhat surmountable and for many years it was like that and it was really touch and go there were just about i would say a dozen people in bombay and a half a dozen people in delhi and a half a dozen people in other parts of india and that was about it you know but something's happened in the last couple of uh, decades and oh let's say the last decade really and there really has been a kind of flowering and it makes the anthologist job much more difficult because now there are if you're conscientious about making a definitive book you have to keep your eyes open in terms of all types of media you can't just look at poets who have published books you right. have to look on instagram you have to be alert to all kinds of things right. there are amazing poets working out there who are in their 20s and have are yet to publish a book and i wanted this anthology to be so definitive that 10 or 15 years from now when you open this book you will get a sense that oh yeah this was someone who had not published a book in 2022 and has today and you know you can see that kind of future flowering is that what differentiates it from the other anthologies uh, that you worked on I think certainly that is a big part of it because I don't think this would have been possible in the age before social media. The previous anthology, the last one was in 2008 
And I researched that really by sitting in libraries, the British Museum Library, sorry, the British Library, the IIC Library, Adil Jassawala's archive in Bombay, and my own library, and wherever I happened upon published books. So immediately you're narrowing the gaze. You're, you're looking at poets who have published. Whereas I think the exciting thing about this book is that there are poets who are yet to publish a book, but I know, I can smell it, that you will hear from these people. You're today recognized as a well-known novelist after the success of your first book, Narcopolis, in 2012, but you've been writing poetry for decades. Tell us a bit about the earlier years, your influences, and that age when, you know, the Indian poets were still sort of coming about. Now, when I look back on those years, in my 20s and uh, 30s in Bombay, I'm just astonished that I continued writing, and I'm astonished that some of the poets I knew at that time continued to write, because it was a much less hopeful time for poetry than it is today. If you were to write a poem, for example, or a bunch of poems, or a book's worth of poems, you could show it to your friends, you could maybe hope to be published. There would be very, it, even for well-known poets, it was uh, not a given. You might still be rejected. So it was a truly lonely life with very little returns and very little hope for the future, which is why so many of those poets from that time gave up, really. They couldn't handle the the stress and the kind of nihilism of that life. It was a nihilistic way to live. There was nothing positive in your daily vista that you could count on. You could, you could be someone like Jayanta Mahapatra who had published uh, 10 books and you still didn't have a regular publisher. Next book would be picked up. And this is something that would never have happened to a poet in the US or the UK or any country with a robust publishing world. It happened in India because there's no money in poetry. Publishers know that. They use it all the time to pay us little to this day, to cheat us basically, to dismiss us. They constantly say that we don't publish poetry when they do. And when they really should be paying poets like they pay novelists. Or, okay, let me rephrase that. They should be paying poets like they pay bad novelists. Even a bad novelist, even a first-time novelist is paid two lakhs for a novel. A well-known poet is paid 40,000 for a new book of poems. So as long as that world continues to be so skewed you are never going to have a kind of a, a poetry infrastructure or ecosystem in which poets feel confident enough to publish regularly and to write. And I mean, I see that changing a lot because right now we don't really care about being published. We don't have to care about being published. We can put our books or our poems online and get instant kind of responses and reactions. And really, that 
is tremendously important just for a poet's, uh, what's the word, self-esteem. I'm thinking of so many of the poets I knew who just couldn't hack it anymore and stopped doing it or would take 10 years between books. How did the idea of the Penguin Book of Indian Poets come about? And, and how long has it been in the making? It really has been 20 years in the making. And that's because uh, of just a set of very unique circumstances. Miru Gokhale asked if I would update 60 Indian poets. I think this would have been maybe around 2019. I think just before the pandemic happened. And of course I said yes, and I meant to do literally that, just update 16 in poets. But as I got into it and started thinking about it, I wanted to do a, a different kind of book because times had changed so completely that 16 in poets just didn't seem relevant to me for this decade, for this Indian decade. It seemed absolutely irrelevant. And I'm talking about the politics and the the sense of uh, accelerated time that we're in at the moment, where really there is a sense of uh, end times in the air. And I think we all feel this, and I think those two years of pandemic exacerbated it. It just seemed to me that it wasn't worth doing in that way. And, and so then I started working on a different kind of book. And uh, why I say it took 20 years is because a lot of the material that was in 60 Indian Poets and in the Fulcrum Anthology before that, in 2004, all of that stuff, a lot of that material was used in this anthology, including essays and uh, many of the poems by poets who are no longer with us, you know, A.K. Ramanujan, uh, Nisim Ezekiel. And the thing is, the permissions that we got for those poems, if I had to renegotiate it today, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have done it. So a lot of the material dates back to 2003, when we first started working on the Fulcrum Anthology uh, with Philip Nikolaev in Boston. And then of course, those things stayed the same, the photos stayed the same, the clearinghouse covers stayed the same, but the entire remit was expanded and we, we used more of the portraits that Madhu had shot over the years because Madhu had continued shooting uh, poets for no reason at all, just because he's an obsessive compulsive sort of artist. On his own dime, had traveled around the country shooting portraits of poets for no reason on earth. So, when it came time to put this together, I asked for whatever else he might have had. And where the three previous anthologies had, I think, eight portraits, this one has 20. Where does the cover come from? It's so interesting. It's of yeah. this is an, it's this boho style. Yeah, um, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about this cover and, and, and a little bit about Madhu for the, for the listener? That cover portrait was shot in uh, Eunice's kitchen in Santa Cruz, Bombay. And it's an 
example of exactly what I mean when I talk about mother's method of working. It's a picture of Eunice. I would guess in the late morning, in the kitchen, probably about to make a cup of tea with her pet parrot on her head, smoking her first cigarette of the day. Only Madhu Kaparit could have shot this portrait because most other photographers would have contacted Eunice and she would have put on her silk sari and her bindi, which she liked to do in those years because she was, she was the grand dame of Indian poetry by then. And she was very particular about her appearance and how she presented herself to the camera. But this was Madhu, who, what he did was he hung out with you and he became your friend. You never saw a camera. For weeks and months and years, you never saw a camera. Then one day, when you're at your most unguarded, at your most vulnerable, a camera appears and a picture is taken in the matter of seconds. This is how Madhu works. And it's taken in seconds because he's already composed it. He's seen this figure. He's seen the background. He's composed it in his head. He knows exactly how much negative space, what details he's going to get into the frame. And the camera appears, the photo is taken, camera is put away. You hardly even know that you've been photographed until years later, you know, 15 years later, you realize in the case of Adil Jasawala that you're standing there without a shirt. Or in the case of Eunice D'Souza, you are... Uh, in your house coat smoking a cigarette, or in the case of Arvind Krishna Mehrotra, you're sitting in Azad Maidan looking a bit shell-shocked, or in my case, you're passed out on a bed. I mean, and at first you're really embarrassed by these pictures and you try to, you try to ignore them and maybe hide them. But then, at least in my case, I thought, it doesn't matter whether I want to, whether I'm embarrassed and I want to hide this picture. Uh, it no longer belongs to me. It's Madhu's and it's, uh, I guess, a part of Indian poetic tradition or something. I think that is the peculiar magic and power of these portraits. And without them, this book would not be the document that it is. The other thing about this book, which is over 900 pages covering 94 poets born from 1924 to 2001, is that it neither appears in alphabetical or chronological manner. What would you suggest how one goes about reading this book? Lovely. Thank you for asking that. That's exactly what I hope a reader will ask themselves when they pick up this book. The way to read it is to dip in and out at your leisure and at your pleasure. The way to read it is to dip into it and proceed and find unexpected connections occurring between yourself and the poems that you're reading and between the poems that you encounter and the poets that you encounter, one after the other. And there is a very clear kind of a flow that occurs. It isn't chronological. It isn't alphabetical. Because those are really 
very boring ways of uh, presenting 94 very unique personalities. Why would we do that? Why should we do that? Let's place them within a context that they would enjoy. So I've put poets next to other poets that they would love to spend an evening with. In your foreword, you write that Indian poetry in English took a lot longer to emerge from the influence of English poetry before Nizim Ezekiel and Dom Marais cleared the way. How would you place the many younger poets in this anthology, poets like Aditi Nagrat, Alolika Datta, Mindy Kale, how are they rewriting the canon today? Exactly. They are rewriting the canon in such unexpected, absolutely contemporary ways. And the three poets that you mentioned, I think, keep an eye on them because you are going to see work by them in the future. These are serious poets uh, who take their craft very seriously and who, when you read them, for example, Mindy Corgill occurs before Vijay Sheshadri. Uh, and in fact, Sampurna Chatterjee, Mindy Corgill, and Sandeep Parmar occur before Vijay Sheshadri. You would think that they are so different in their historical and spiritual craft or practice that you would not see points of resonance between those four poets, but in fact you do. And really for me, that was one of the great pleasures of reading, reading them. And Mindy's work, for example, which kind of flows in a very, it, you get a sense of a, a voice speaking to you. And you get exactly that sense from Sampurna, from Sandeep, from Vijay. You get a sense of a real person speaking to you. You know, no AI program could have written those poems. Those are hard, I don't know, hard earned, if you want, poems where each line has been worked for and worked at. And there is a kind of a flow there. You know that when they were written, they were not uh, kind of about the iambic and the dactylic and uh, how many syllables are in each line and counting all of that kind of stuff. It, it occurred in a very organic kind of flow, but you know that there is years of reading and writing that went into that moment where luck happened to rain upon them and this poem descended upon them and they were lucky enough to be there at that moment to transcribe it. You mentioned this before and, and, and you know, we, we keep coming back to platforms like Instagram, which have given birth to new age poetry, which is free of form of or baggage of style and craft or meter. How is it changing the way poetry flows? Yeah, let's talk about the, the plus and the minus. The plus is something I talked about earlier, and that is uh, that you now no longer have to wait for gatekeepers of publishing houses to decide that you're good enough to be published. You know, I've been at the receiving end of that kind of random discrimination, and I know how 
ridiculous it is and how dispiriting it is. You no longer have to wait for that, which is absolutely wonderful. You can put your poems out there. It will resonate with whomever it might resonate with, and you know instantly, and that is a beautiful thing. And it's only going to keep growing. And as the technology expands, we're going to find new ways of being able to deliver a poem instantly. This is a beautiful thing. The kind of side effect of that is that you may not spend as long in crafting that poem as you might have earlier. And that really is up to the poet. It, it's up to how what your ambitions are for your poem. Do you want only a kind of instant response, 300 likes, or do you want something that will travel and be there in the future? And it's not an either or situation. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can absolutely choose both. And I think what that means is you work on something with the idea and the hope that it will not just be shared and be liked for, the, for two days, but will go out there and be in the culture for two decades. And that's absolutely up to each individual poet. It's up to you what you want and how you shape your work. So as a, as a poet and an editor, what do you look for in a new poet when you come across? I like to hear the sound of a human voice in all its uh, ragged, dysmorphic, psychotropic glory. The pandemic, as well as the protests that have erupted in recent years, we've seen many take to writing poetry, sharing poetry as a form of expression. Do you feel that poetry finds a resurgence in dark times? It absolutely does. I think every time we go through a collective grief or a collective uh, crisis, you see people reading poems who have never really been affected by poetry before. This happens all the time. I was in New York in 9-11 and it was the first time you ever saw poems appear on the editorial pages of the New York Times or any one of those awful capitalist corporate newspapers, you know, read by right-wing Americans. And I'm talking about the Wall Street Journal. There were poems quoted even in those hallowed, in quotes, pages. And I think that's a very understandable response to a crisis. You don't, for one thing, have the maybe the mental patience to kind of read a thousand words. You want to read a few lines with white space around it on a page. And there's something about reading words arranged in that way with thought and consequence on a little white rectangle of white a few lines, a few words that have been thought about and have been shaped. And there's something about reading something like that that gives you the sense of being in a church of the people 
whether God is not a faceless creature in the heavens, but all of us, a kind of an electric modern church in which the prayers are something people tell each other. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.